Okay, so everybody has a Bible somewhere within reach of them. If you don't have your, your own Bible with you, there's a black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. I want you to open it up at the very beginning and start flipping until you see the table of contents. Now, when you see the table of contents, you've got the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus. As you go down that list, towards the very end of it, you're going to see the book of Haggai. Now, I'm, I'm doing this so that those of you who don't, didn't know before now where Haggai was don't have to feel embarrassed about that. So find the page number that Haggai is, and then go ahead and turn there. So... Uh, as I had mentioned last week, I've taken a little bit of a break from uh, our, our study of the church in Ephesus, and uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to cover the entire book of Haggai in one fell swoop. There's going to be a lot that we'll sort of gloss over. There's going to be a lot that uh, we don't um, handle directly, but this is, a, this is a good overview of this book. Uh, Haggai is one of the, the minor prophets, not minor in importance, but minor in length, uh, not very long. Uh, so to give you some historical context here, uh, the people of Israel were brought out of the land of Egypt in what we call the Exodus. Um, they were brought out, they were led by Moses through the wilderness, they conquered the promised land, the land that God had promised to them, uh, and they went through a period of time that we refer to as the Judges. Uh, That was when there wasn't a designated continuous leader uh, of the people of Israel, but as the people would sin, God would bring oppression on them as punishment for their sin. God would raise up a judge to lead the people to repentance, to lead the people out of that, um, out of that oppression. And at the end of the book of Judges, at the end of the time of the Judges, rather, Uh, the people came to Samuel, the judge at the time, and they said, we want a king so that we can be just like all the other nations around us. Uh, Now, God had specifically told them, you're not supposed to be like all of the nations around you. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be set apart. But the people persisted, and so uh, Saul was appointed king over Israel. Following Saul, we had David, Uh, You're all familiar with David, David and Goliath. He was called a man after God's own heart, and he wanted to build a temple for God. But God wouldn't allow him to because he was a man of war, because he had blood on his hands. But David's son, Solomon, was able to build the temple. Um, So Solomon built this temple for God, but he was drawn, his heart was drawn away from God because of his foreign wives. And so because of uh, Solomon's sin, God promised him, he told him that the kingdom was going to be divided after, uh, after he died. And that, uh, that promise occurs in, in 1 Kings 11. Solomon's son uh, Rehoboam came to the throne, and there was a group of people who came to him and said, your father worked us pretty hard. They built this temple, they expanded the kingdom, we'd like to have a little bit of relief from that. And uh, Rehoboam, in a very uh, uh, proud move, said, My father whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. You thought you had it bad under my father. You're going to have it worse under me. And so uh, 
needless to say, that didn't go over real well, and it resulted in a rebellion. Uh, and so the nation split in half. You had the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, ten tribes, and then you had Judah, the southern kingdom, which was uh, the two remaining tribes. So Israel was, by and large, unfaithful to God, and they were uh, taken off into captivity by the Assyrians after about 200 years. Just as a little aside, the, the remnant, the people who were left behind in Israel, came to be called Samaritans. You see the Samaritans uh, showing up in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, right, as people who were despised. And that's part of the reason why, because they were unfaithful, because they were led away into, into captivity like that. Uh, so Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted a little bit longer. There was another 200 years before Judah was captured or conquered by the Babylonians and the people were led off into captivity. Babylon, Babylon was conquered by the Persians. Uh, and we see in Ezra 1 that Cyrus, the king of Persia, commands the Jews, the people of Judah, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so there's this group of 40-some-odd thousand people who return to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding that temple. But they tarried. They were being a little slow about uh, that work. And so almost 20 years has gone by, and they haven't been able to really start that work in earnest. Uh, so let's, and, and so that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of the book of Haggai. So we're going to start right in chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So this is the, this is the situation of the people at this point in time. They were in sin. They had placed their own luxury before obedience to God's command. We saw that, right? The time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They were saying, it, it's not time yet for us to do this work that God has called us to do. It's, it's just not the right time. But this is in contradiction to, uh, to the word of the Lord that uh, had come through Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is in Ezra 1. Uh, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. So God sent these people back specifically, explicitly, to rebuild the temple. But instead, they had devoted their time to building what Haggai says are paneled houses. Now, that doesn't really say a whole awful lot to us, because you can go down to Lowe's and, or Collins, right? 
we're, we're at Collins place here. Uh, <laughs> you can go down to Collins and you can buy sheets of paneling and it's pretty inexpensive and it goes up pretty easy. It's not that big a deal. But remember, we're talking about a, a pre-industrial society. To panel a room when all you have is hand tools, that's a pretty significant undertaking. And so they have these paneled houses. It was a luxury that required a significant investment of time and of money in, in that day and age. So these people were committed to seeing themselves comfortable and well provided for before they were willing to be obedient to God's command. That has consequences, right? We saw that in, in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your, your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And then later on in, in verse 9. You have looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. In verse 10, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So you have worked, Haggai is saying, you have worked for your own benefit, your own security, your own comfort, but you've failed to achieve it. So why had, they, why had they not been able to achieve what they were seeking after? Uh, this is the second half of verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So they had failed to walk in obedience to the grace of their calling. Ultimately, it was an act of God's grace and mercy to them that they were allowed to return from their exile. But on doing so, they had sought their own comfort. They had sought their own prosperity while neglecting to give glory to God through their obedience to his command. Their entire purpose in being allowed to return was so that the temple would be rebuilt. And they were 20 some odd years in and they hadn't even started but they had tried to make themselves just as comfortable as they could. And so because they sought after those things, they worked harder than they needed to and never actually achieved their aim. That's what, that's what it says in verse 6. You have sown much, but harvested little. You earn wages, but you put them into a bag with holes, and what you've earned disappears. And so as, as a result of this disobedience, there's a command here. This is in, in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Repent, turn aside, and be obedient to God's command so that he may be glorified. Stop trying to make yourself comfortable and start being obedient. There's an expectation here that, that we can learn from. God comes first at all times and in all things. And this especially should have been, this should have been well known to these people who had just come back. They had been, the nation had been exiled and dragged off into captivity because of their disobedience. 
They'd spent almost 70 years in exile. But they had already fallen back into apathy and laziness, if not outright rebellion. And so Haggai is calling them back to obedience, calling them to repent, calling them to rebuild their lives with God at the center, rather than their own comfort and their own security. So how do they respond to that call? This is in uh, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So the result was that the people and the leaders were all stirred to obedience. And God granted them this promise of his presence. And he granted them the influence of his spirit. There's a second prophecy that occurs here. Very shortly thereafter. Uh, this is in, in chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So this is everybody. And say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So the people have moved from this place of disobedience to obedience, but there's a sadness. Uh, because there are still people among that group that remember the temple in its former glory. And they're looking at what they're building now and they're saying, and, and they're weeping because the old temple was so glorious and the new one is so small and insignificant and plain. See, in the old days, the temple was the very home of God in this world. It was glorious. It was, it was without comparison. The materials alone would have cost something like half a trillion dollars to buy today. But the diminished glory... And the diminished majesty of the temple did not mean that God was diminished in glory or that God was diminished in majesty. It did not mean that he was any less with them in that day than in the day of Solomon. Verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So the command that he gives them, be strong, work, 
for I am with you. Fear not. And the basis for their work, the basis for their strength, the basis for their lack of fear is that his covenant with his people still stands. When people came out of Egypt in the Exodus, God said to them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this promise that God had made still stood. The promises that God makes still stand. They stand through all things. Their disobedience couldn't nullify the promise of God. It didn't cancel that covenant. There were consequences to their sin, to be sure. That's, that's why they ended up in exile. But as long as they were willing to return to him, as long as they were willing, willing to repent, turn away from their sin and turn towards him, he would fulfill his promises. We see a similar promise to us in Romans 8 where it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The promises of God stand in all things, through all things, and in spite of all things. And he makes them another promise here. In verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet more in a little while, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the promise here is that there will be greater glory and honor in the latter temple than there was in the original. Now this was not fulfilled in the temple that they were building here, nor in the one that was built by Herod that existed in the time of Jesus. But when we look at... uh, In Revelation 21, we see a description of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. This is in Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So the glory of this last temple will far surpass the glory of any temple that ever came before it. Because it will be the very incarnate glory of God. And so despite the lowly circumstances that we might find ourselves in, despite how far we might have fallen, we have this hope 
in the fulfillment of the promises of God. Because our hope is not in a physical building. It's not in an organization. It's not in a group of people or a political nation. But our hope is in Christ Jesus and the promise that he embodied in his body. There's a third prophecy that takes place here. This is in chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the year, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So you have something holy that touches something that's ordinary. Does that holiness pass from the holy thing to the unholy thing? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, yes, it it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So the position, what's happening here, is that the people are defiling this work of building the temple with their unrepentant hearts. They are the unclean thing that is contaminating the clean thing that is this temple that they are trying to build. And so the, the, the command that comes here in, in verse 15, now then consider from this day onward. Uh, and, and that's a phrase that Haggai has used repeatedly through here. And we can, we can look at it in terms of what we talked about in Ephesus. Watch how you walk. Consider your ways. What is the path that you are following? He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to pursue holiness. Because the covenant that he had made with Israel was simple. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If you seek me, if you seek to honor me with your holiness, I will bless you. Now today, We can't simply look at this and say that we need to be obedient to God and God will bless us with physical prosperity, that he will bless us financially. These are the terms of the covenant that existed between God and the nation of Israel. We relate to God under terms of the new covenant, but the call is still similar. But yet, ever so slightly different. In Matthew 6, verse 32. Uh, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we are not promised the satisfaction of all all our financial and physical desires, but rather we are promised that we will find our desires changed and we will desire more and more. What we will desire more and more each day is God. So our responsibility is to seek first after him, to find the fullness of our satisfaction in him. And as we do that, he becomes all that we need. And so if all we have is him, we are satisfied. There's one last prophecy that I want to look at quickly here. Uh, And this is in uh, chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this idea of a signet ring, it's a sign of power and authority. It's a ring that has a seal on it. Uh, if, if you remember in the story of Joseph, when Joseph was made second in command of the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh gave him his signet ring as a sign of the authority and the power that he had. But as Judah was in rebellion, as they were Uh, as God was preparing to send them into captivity, uh, he said through the prophet Jeremiah, and this is in Jeremiah 22, uh, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. So God had said to Zerubbabel's grandfather, You were the signet ring on my hand, but I am about to tear you off and cast you aside. So as a sign of the removal of that authority, as a sign of the removal of that favor, God told him that he was the signet ring that was going to be torn off. And so in this promise to Zerubbabel, you see that return of authority, that return of favor being returned to him. And it wasn't just being returned to him, but it was being returned to him and his, uh, and his progeny until that day when the strength of nations is destroyed. See, there's, there's a, a recurring theme that we see in the promises of God to people. Um, we see when God, God promising Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. Well, he didn't make... Abraham's physical body into something large enough that it was a great nation. But he fulfilled that promise through Abraham's descendants. We saw that in in Genesis 3, when God said uh, to the serpent, the woman will crush your head. That was fulfilled not by that woman, but by one of that woman's descendants. And so we see 
we see this promise being fulfilled, not by Zerubbabel, but by one of his descendants. In the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see uh, a, a list of the ancestors of Christ. And after the de- deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And it goes on down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, um, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So with the authority and the favor of that signet ring promise, there was also a promise that that line, that line of David, would not pass away until the work of the Lord was fulfilled. So when we see Zerubbabel in the lineage of Jesus, we see the fulfillment of that promise. A descendant of Zerubbabel becomes a sign of the power and the might and authority and love and mercy of God. The promised signet ring, a sign of power and authority, carried with it power and authority, not just over the nation of Israel, but over the whole world and over sin and death itself. Prophecy can always be a little bit of a problem for us, especially some of these promises that were made to Israel. Because we have a tendency to want to overapply them to us as, as the church, which is sometimes valid, or us as a nation, which is rarely valid. But prophecy can be used to help us learn more about who God is. Because we serve the same God, and God doesn't change. So what do we learn from this, these prophecies that were delivered to Israel? We learn that God cares about the holiness of his people. He was unwilling to allow people who had defiled themselves to participate in his work. And we understand today that ultimately we are all unholy. We are all defiled people. Yet God still uses us, right? However, Like in the parable of the rich man, we have no place in the kingdom of God while we continue to cling, while we continue to hold on to our sin. So we learn that God cares about the holiness of his people. God demands to be first in our lives. Do you remember the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This was the command that Israel struggled with from the outset. And it's the command that we struggle with today. Uh, You remember the golden calf. God hadn't finished giving his commands to Moses. And they had already broken the first one. When they got into the promised land, they constantly were worshiping the gods of the nations around them. But the sin that Haggai addresses is much more familiar to us, right? Because we don't build statues on hills and bow down and worship them and you know burn incense in front of them. That's not what we do when we create idols today, right? Instead, we do have the same constant draw to spend our time and our attention 
on ourselves and our pursuits rather than those things that we have been commanded to do. In Haggai's time, they were neglecting the physical and spiritual demands of fulfilling God's command to build the temple. And while they were doing that, they were feeding their own physical and spiritual desires. And today we do the same, right? We've been given this great commission to go out into the world and to make disciples. But so very often, our house, our car, our 401k, they're all more important than that missional giving, supporting the work of the Great Commission. Our homes are warm and comfortable, while other people around us are cold and wet. We shove our minds full of one more book, one more devotional, but we make no other, no effort to help others move forward in their walk of faith. We spend our time, our money, our attention, and our energy building up ourselves rather than being obedient to the command of God to build his church through the making of disciples. We might not build statues on hilltops, but the sins that Haggai addresses in the nation of Israel are the sins that are common to us as well. They and we have bowed down to our own comfort, our own security, our own satisfaction, instead of pursuing the work that God has called us to. So take heart from this, as the people of Israel took heart from the work of Haggai. Be hard at work, be obedient to his call, pursue holiness, because the greater glory is coming. It might be hard to see from where we stand today. It's hard for me to see sometimes, but it is coming. Our obedience is not obedience simply for the sake of obedience, but obedience because we believe God's promises. We believe that he is coming again, and we want to be found as workmen who have done good work. We believe that he is coming again, and we want to be found working as he instructed us to. Not because being found working will guarantee our salvation, but it is because our salvation has been guaranteed that we will work. Take heart. Work hard. Pursue holiness. And fulfill that great commission that he has given us. Go and make disciples. Father, we are grateful for your word. It pains us sometimes how it cuts. It pains us when we're confronted with our own sin. It pains us when we consider what obedience will cost. Because it will cost us comfort. It will cost us luxury. It will take time and effort and resources. 
God, but that is what you called us to. As your people, we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. We have been brought forth as men who were once dead but are now alive, God. But we were brought forth with a purpose. And there is nothing that we have, God. There is nothing that we could get that we should not lay down at the foot of the cross in pursuit of that great commission that you have given us, God. We know this in our heads, God. Help to be willing to be obedient. Help us to strengthen one another as we try to walk in obedience together, God. But turn our hearts away from these things. Turn our hearts away from the worship of these things that cannot satisfy and turn our hearts towards you. Help us to depend not on these things, but help us to depend only on you. Rather than seeking our own glory, our own satisfaction, our own comfort, our own lives of luxury, God. Help us to seek hard after you and you alone. That through our lives on this earth, you would be glorified. Not us, but you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.